It's time for the PowerMizzou.com podcast with interviews and analysis of your Missouri Tigers. Now, here's your host, Gabe DeArmond. Welcome back to the PowerMizzou.com podcast. Uh, last one in January. Rather than spend 30 minutes breaking down how many yards Patrick Mahomes will throw for on Sunday, which one of us would thoroughly enjoy, <laughs> that being not Mitchell Forty. Uh, this is Gabe DeArmond. We're going to talk some uh, football, basketball. We don't really know at this point, honestly. Uh, the only thing we do know is we're talking to Tim Sullivan from HokieHaven.com. That is the Virginia Tech rival site. We're talking to Tim because Missouri got a graduate transfer wide receiver from Virginia Tech, Damon Hazelton, earlier this week. Tim, how you doing, man? Not too bad. How about you guys? Not bad at all. Appreciate you joining us. And uh, like I said, I mean, the first question is uh, is very specific and um, very educated. Just tell us about Damon Hazelton as a player. <laughs> yeah, he's kind of your classic, you know, big outside jump ball winning wide receiver. I mean, he's got a little bit of kind of, I guess, an all around game wherein he can he can make some plays after the catch. Uh, they involve him in the screen game a little bit, but um, you know, when you look at a guy who isn't the biggest guy in the world. Um, he's probably about six one. They probably, I think Virginia Tech lists him at six three. But um, he has the leaping ability. He has kind of a ham strength, the body control to be that sort of jump ball receiver, and a guy who can kind of uh, make those plays after the catch to to turn some of those jump balls into long runs after catch and long touchdowns. Uh, if you know, kind of the defensive back uh, sells out to try and stop that catch from happening. I, I think that's probably, you know, a thousand foot view. That's probably the the big picture of what he's like. Uh, Hazleton obviously transferred in, he transferred into Virginia Tech from uh, mm-hmm. starting his career at Ball State spent two two seasons at Virginia Tech actually three set out one and then played two uh, what, was there a kind of a, a reason that you know for, for his desire to, to look elsewhere as a, as a graduate transfer yeah so I guess starting with the from the beginning how he ended up at Virginia Tech he went to Ball State um, out of the Baltimore area because I believe the Cardinals were his only scholarship offer um, he had a pretty big freshman year there and, and realized that he was probably a higher caliber prospect, uh, especially for his NFL future, um, and wanted to kind of end up at a school that would allow him to, to kind of see that out a little bit. So um, he transferred to Virginia Tech, obviously a little bit closer to home. He's a kid from Baltimore. Um, you know, it's not exactly around the corner, but it is kind of one of those pipeline areas for the Hokies. Um, he kind of has friction with the coaching staff in the, each of the past two preseasons. Um, not that... Uh, they thought he wasn't going to be able to get it done on the field, but um, especially this past year, it, he kind of seemed like he was a little checked out and ready to hopefully have a big year and move on to the NFL. Um, he had a, a lingering hamstring issue that the athletic training staff kind of said, you know, this guy's healthy. He can, he can practice all throughout camp. He can practice early in the year. And Hazleton himself kind of said, yeah, I'm just going to go through the motions a little bit. Um, he ended up sitting out, I believe, the first two games, um, nursing that hamstring issue, and then kind of had a limited role until uh, probably three or four games into the season. And then I believe he was benched one more time uh, late in the year, too, kind of for the same sort of thing. So it was kind of an attitude where, uh, you know, the coaches and he didn't really get along. That I, You know, I don't want to put words in their mouth, to say the least, but it kind of seemed like they felt he wasn't necessarily looking out for the best interest of the team, which ultimately ended up not being in the best interest of himself, obviously, because, you know, as I mentioned, it seemed like he was ready to declare for the NFL after that redshirt junior year didn't have a big enough year to be able to do that. And that's why um, he was available for another school and, and Missouri got a good pickup in him. Uh, 2018, I mean, 51 catches for 800 yards. Last year, it dips to 31 for 527, but eight touchdowns. I actually 
had a chance to see Virginia Tech play this year. I went up to Notre Dame with a friend uh, for the Virginia Tech game. And how much of it is this offense? I mean, those numbers don't sound great, but at least on the day I watched Virginia Tech, and I'm not obviously, you know, a lot more about them than I do. It looked to me like a team that wanted to run every down until there really wasn't another choice. And then the passing offense was either a screen or I don't know, man, let's just throw it up and give somebody a chance. I mean, those seem to me like in that passing offense actually to be decent numbers. Yeah, so I, a big part of it is is the Notre Dame game that you saw. Uh, the Hokies were without their starting quarterback. Um, they had already benched the the player who started the year um, as the starting quarterback, Ryan Willis, who's a fifth-year senior, former walk-on, um, who's actually his style was a pretty good fit for Hazleton. So the fact that uh, his starting career, at least this season, didn't really overlap with when Hazleton was fully healthy and ready to go hurt him a little bit. But um, in that Notre Dame game, Hendon Hooker, who became the starting quarterback in the fifth game of the year, uh, was out with an injury. So Quincy Patterson, a redshirt freshman who uh, I, I guess isn't ready to run the full passing offense or certainly wasn't uh, back then in October, certainly wasn't ready to run the full passing offense. So that was a big part of it. This is a, a coaching staff that, um, whether at Memphis or when Justin Fuente was the offensive coordinator at TCU, they really actually want to stretch the field with those outside wide receivers. Uh, they will run some screens with them as well. But uh, the goal is to not necessarily chuck it up to them, but definitely uh, give them those opportunities downfield, including jump balls. So uh, I, in the big picture, uh, his numbers are good, not great. Um, the decrease this year was as much about uh, kind of changes at the quarterback position as it was about his injury issues early in the year, getting benched here and there. So um, I think it, it, in the passing offense, generally, his numbers are good. They could have been better for sure, but uh, I wouldn't worry too much about what he personally did in 2019 as it projects to the 2020 season. Well, Tim, I, th- I feel like we've uh, exhausted most of our uh, Damon Hazleton scouting report. Uh, definitely <laughs> learned a lot more about him. One, one thing I wanted to ask you, I know obviously Bud Foster retired as defensive coordinator after this season, and uh, there was a bit of speculation that uh, Barry Odom, fired Missouri coach, mm-hmm. might rejoin uh, Justin Fuente there at Virginia Tech. Do you have any insight as to uh, as to how close or, or that was to actually happening or how realistic those, uh, those thoughts might have been? Yeah, it seems like uh, you know I, a lot of the speculation because Odom had – uh, the, the level of, of coaching experience that he did, a lot of the speculation was that he would be a defensive coordinator. I think uh, Hokies kind of always had it in their minds that they would prefer to promote within. Uh, they were looking for a linebackers coach, which Odom coached linebackers and was the defensive coordinator for Fuente, I believe, both of those um, at Memphis. So that was something that that connection was there. But um, it seemed like a guy who is coming off of a, a head coaching position uh, probably wasn't going to uh, come to Blacksburg and become a position coach, basically, as this staff did want to, you know, kind of maintain a little bit of continuity with the Bud Foster system. So I think once those sides kind of uh, spoke about it and, and laid out that, you know, one side wanted the, uh, uh, to potentially look at him as a linebackers coach, and obviously I think uh, Odom probably wasn't as interested in that. Uh, I think it fizzled relatively quickly. So that's something that, uh, you know, as it, as it went along, I, I don't know that uh, Fuente and Odom, relationship was strong enough to kind of overcome that impasse that they reached uh, positionally. A couple other kind of big picture things to finish up with you. Uh, A lot of talk about Justin Fuente and he has become this guy that his name just seems to pop up with every job opening. I don't know if that's because he's got an agent that puts it out there. I don't know if he's unhappy at Virginia Tech or Virginia Tech isn't all that happy with him, but what's the 
It, what's kind of Fuente's footing in Blacksburg, and, and why do you think his name is one that pops up for jobs where even sometimes you go, I don't get it. That's not a better job. Yeah, I think a big part of it is that um, Virginia Tech fans aren't necessarily always the happiest with him, and I think part of that is it's unfair to Fuente because they look at him and say, that's not Frank Beamer. But right. if, if you actually go back and look at the final five years of Frank Beamer's tenure at Virginia Tech, uh, that wasn't Frank Beamer either. I think I looked it up, and, and Fuente would have to go 5-7 and seven this upcoming season to match the final five years record-wise of the Frank Beamer era, and that is definitely not the expectation as they return almost every starter other than Hazleton. So, it's something that uh, you look at a guy who had a ton of success at Memphis, obviously, um, and maybe despite being reasonably successful, not the most successful, but reasonably successful at a Power 5 program, but potentially kind of looking at at least a fan base. I don't think the administration has any problem with him, but the fan base, some of the members of the fan base almost root for him to get a bigger job, get a promotion, and kind of start clean with the you know, being the guy after the guy is probably a little bit easier than being the guy after Frank Beamer immediately. So I think that's a big part of it. It's, it's kind of the fan base's uh, idea of it. Um, <clears throat> obviously, he was mentioned uh, for the Baylor position this year, and, that, and that's a slightly different thing. He's a guy who grew up in Oklahoma, but most of his coaching career has taken place in the state of Texas, um, a little bit in Oklahoma too. But he's a guy who people kind of speculate he's out of his home region. Would he like to get back there and get closer uh, to his extended family a little bit. And I think that that uh, played a role in him actually having an interview with Baylor, or at least having a discussion with Baylor. Uh, the Baylor administration came up to Blacksburg and kind of spoke with him there. So I think that was a big part of it uh, with this specific one. But generally, it's kind of it's kind of just that picture of a guy who necessarily doesn't seem like the greatest fit at the program that he's at. Last thing for you, the guy that ultimately, if Justin Fuente were to go somewhere else, would be making the decision on who would replace him is a former Mizzou guy, AD there is Whit Babcock, uh, and a guy that, I mean, for, for years has been kind of viewed as a rising star in this industry. And his name pops up a little bit, but what's your experience has been working with Whit? And, uh, you know, do you think he's, he's long-term in, in, at Virginia Tech, or is this a guy that could get kind of one of those – you know, national big-time jobs in the next little bit. Yeah, his reputation among Virginia Tech fans is as high as it could possibly be. He's hired a bunch of non-revenue coaches who have been extremely successful. I think people were surprised that he managed to get a coach of the caliber of Fuente to replace Frank Beamer, even though it hasn't necessarily played out the way the fan base would have wanted. But uh, what he's been able to do, uh, both on and off the field, he's, he's done a big fundraising push that has allowed – the Hokies to work on their football facilities and some of their other athletic facilities. He's as popular as you can possibly be. And I think um, obviously you guys have a little bit of experience with him and know that he's, he's as solid a guy as it comes in this industry. It doesn't seem like he has any interest in leaving, not necessarily soon, but at all. Um, I don't know that I would call anybody a lifer in this industry nowadays, right. but certainly he's somebody that fans are happy with. And he seems extremely happy with Virginia tech as well. All right. Well, Tim, appreciate the time, man. And uh, we'll talk to you down the road. Thanks, Tim. Yep, thanks for having me, guys. All right, Tim Sullivan, HokieHaven.com. A little bit of insight to uh, to Damon Hazelton. We got to kind of turn to people that have covered these guys because, uh, you know, recruits don't talk anymore. Uh, I think <laughs> yeah. we haven't – we've talked to one of them uh, that, that has committed. But, um, you know, I hadn't really thought of it, but we've talked a lot about Jim Sterk's time is somewhat limited here, whether that's two years – the, the contract, I think, has about three and a half left. We don't really anticipate him staying beyond that. I, I got to be honest, 
I've got to think Whit Babcock is the first call if, if that were to eventually happen. Yeah, there's there's quite a few athletic directors kind of sprinkled across or, or staffers, high-level staffers spr- sprinkled across the country who have Missouri ties. Um, but he's probably the one who's who's risen the highest at his respective school and obviously in, a, in an ACC school. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would think that would be a, a very a very logical guess. Yeah, I know I know Witt's name came up a little bit uh, at USC before they hired Mike Bowen from Cincinnati and He's a, uh, I, I mean, I got to know him a little bit when he was here and uh, look, I'd, I'd be in favor. That's mm-hmm. uh we've decided whenever Jim Sterk is done with Babcock next AD at Missouri. All right, there we go. We'll just save you all the trouble of, uh, of tuning in for the search. Although actually no, because that, that makes us money. Right. So, yeah, yeah, no, uh, <laughs> we have no idea who it would ever be, um, but we'll make some things up when that time comes. But uh, that time is again, probably down the road. Um, Back to kind of the football part of it that we're talking about. You know, look, this is a class that I, I think you're talking maybe 50 in the national rankings at the end. I mean, it's not a huge class. It's just they might end up with a four-star or two, but there's not going to be a lot. It's not going to look good on paper. But the one thing I've been impressed with that Eli Drinkwitz has done, if you look at this roster, there's two positions where you've got to have a guy next year. One of them's wide receiver, and he got one. Now, what Hazleton becomes, who knows, but he's a graduate transfer. Uh, and the other's defensive line, specifically to me, defensive end. I've mm-hmm. got to think at some point you, you got to go get a grad transfer defensive end. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, you know, they, they brought in a junior college defensive lineman and Ben Key, but he's – a probably he's more likely to play in the middle. Yeah, he's, he's unlikely probably to play defensive end. And B, um, you know, I, I mean, it's it's hard to know how players are going to translate from junior college. I mean, people last year were saying when when Cy Martin signed in the late period, you know, he could be an instant back guy. I'm not sure he made a tackle. Um, so yeah, yeah, I mean, it's uh, those, I would agree. I think you know, I think the get of Hazelton is is huge. Uh, obviously, we'll see how it ends up working out. But like, uh, I mean, that's a guy who I'm sure a lot of other programs were interested in at a position of major need. I mean, I, I looked, I forget, I looked when, when Hazelton committed, but I, I believe Missouri's of their returning receivers, not counting Tyler Beatty. I don't think they had a guy who had caught more than, I want to say like 17 passes last year. And they're all of their returning receivers combined to to catch two touchdowns. Yeah. So, and, and major it's need. not like the guys. I mean, I'm pretty sure Hazelton would have led Missouri in receiving last year as yeah. far as wide receivers go. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. So it, that helps. Um, and three of his four commitments have been on the defensive line, which is a position that, you know, I was amazed when, when I kind of redid the scholarship chart uh, for the first time a, a couple months ago. Like they had 12 defensive linemen on the team, but eight of them are entering their final year of eligibility. I mean, this class and next class, you have got to absolutely hammer the defensive line. Yeah, and they they started to do that, um, you know, during kind of the early period, and then when when Barry Odom got fired, despite the fact that Brick Haley was retained, but basically the whole defensive line class kind of jumped ship, so they had to restart. That's why you see quite a, you've seen a few defensive linemen, uh, Montre Edwards and uh, and Ben Key, who I mentioned. There's they're in on a couple others um, now who who've been brought in, but yeah, so they're trying to rebuild that depth. Obviously, you, you know, you kind of have the next next year's class can help a little bit with that although you don't want to probably count on guys to to play straight out of high school um more i think yeah the question the question becomes you know will they have someone who can rush the passer this season because that's that's obviously been missing and we'll find a little bit out about how barry odom's recruiting was like what's darius robinson do Mm -hmm. what does isaiah mcguire do Mm -hmm. what you know does cy martin become a guy that can get on the field so all those things are are going to factor in national signing day you know 
2.0 is next Wednesday. Mm-hmm. I Missouri has three spots left. Now, we all know they can go over that, but I'm not sure they go too much over that because I think you've got to wait and see what happens in the transfer portal, and you've got to save minimum two, three spots. So I think they're looking for another wide receiver, mm-hmm. an offensive lineman, and a defensive lineman, mm-hmm. and, and maybe a little bit beyond that. Yeah, I would say they they certainly are going to take Ennis Rakestraw, the cornerback from Texas, if he right. is if he chooses Missouri. They might still look for a cornerback other than him, although they haven't really been tied to anyone that we know of, so so I doubt it. Um, but yeah, I think I think you you definitely keep spots open for you know a, tr- a traditional transfer, or graduate transfer who maybe comes available after the spring or even closer to the start of fall camp, just because like we mentioned, you know there are definitely a few holes uh, where, where guys could come in and play this season. And, and Drinkwitz has said and. And Hazelton fits this bill, but he said, you know, he wants touchdown makers. He wants to, he wants to bring in guys who can, you know, pump some life into the offense that really struggled down the stretch last season. So I would definitely not be surprised if he uh, he keeps some spots open for those type of guys. All right, so we'll flip to basketball a little bit. Uh, there are some rumors going around. Josh Christopher would be on campus next weekend for an official visit. We've not yet been able to confirm that. I haven't seen anybody confirm it, um, but that would be big. That is what this team has to have um, because the the last time out, the way I would, would describe that game is 26 and a half minutes of awful basketball by Missouri followed by 13 and a half minutes of I guess what was twice as bad as that by Georgia. Yeah, I mean, we, we were talking during the game, like, when Georgia was winning by, you know, 10, 20 points, like, they, they didn't appear to be playing very well. Uh, Anthony, intelligent. Yeah, Anthony Edwards was very good. Um, he ended up not having, I mean, he scored 23 points, ended up taking 24 shots, but at, at a certain point, he was, like, 21 points on, like, 16 shots, which is certainly better. He is going to be a very good player in the NBA, but yeah. for the most part, Georgia was basically just running down the floor and jacking up a shot as quickly as possible. Possible. Or like throwing a pass into the fourth row, right? right. At yeah. someone's ankle. Yeah, and Missouri still managed to go. I think it was like five and a half minutes without scoring in the first half, and then had a had a series of defensive lapses in the second. But yeah, I mean, you know, the win the other night, it's good. It, it, it's fun. Like you know, I I was happy for Reed Nico. He's the type yeah. of kid who's not going to probably get very many opportunities in his life to be the hero, and and he's gone through a lot. So good for him. But like. I don't think it's necessarily indicative of a big, you know, shift or, or that this team's capable of making some sort of crazy run. Obviously, you know, winning a game is better than losing, but uh, I, I'm not, I'm not sold on Georgia being a particularly good team or this, you know, necessarily leading to a to a lot of wins no. in the future. I mean, the next game's in Columbia, South Carolina, and the Gamecocks just won at Arkansas. Right now, it, it, you look at the SEC standings. Missouri is two games out of fourth. Yeah, you know, so like, look, they could make a charge, but. Making a charge in this league, I'm not sure, really does anything for you. Because, yeah, you can win some games, but all you're doing is beating other – I mean, I think there's one and a half really good teams in this league. Yeah, LSU is a very good team. Mm -hmm. Kentucky is, I think, by March going to be a threat. They've been playing pretty well lately. Auburn strikes me as a team that on the right night can be pretty good, but no way they're good enough to do what they did last year and play four straight games. No, I don't think so. Yeah, no, I think I I agree that LSU and Kentucky are the best teams in the league. Um, I think Kentucky's pretty good. Um, I think they're the, and they always tend to, you know, play their best ball towards the end of the season. Uh, But yeah, I mean, like Missouri's conference schedule the rest of the way isn't particularly hard. Um, It's, It's, 
it's like eleven swing games, right? But you know, but like, yeah, what like you said, like I mean, unless they win all of them, what does that really right. do for you? If you know, if you win half of those games and like you know finish like, you know seventh in the league, like that looks nice. It's you know it's better record than last season, but it, it's nowhere near good enough to to make the NCAA tournament or really even be on the bubble discussion. I mean, they've got to go seven and four to make the NIT. Yeah, you know, so. or make a run in Nashville. So that's uh, that's where we're at there. The rest of the league, I mean. Florida's the biggest disappointment in this league, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean we might – like, they, they have a couple decent wins. You know, they ended up they, – they beat Auburn pretty good. I think they beat someone else. I don't know. But, like, they – I think, one, they, they've not been good as a whole. And, two, we saw them at their yeah. worst uh, on that snowy night uh, a couple weeks ago. Second biggest disappointment in the league, I think, is probably Ole Miss. Oh, yeah. I mean – Yeah. I thought I, they could – I thought I they'd thought, be good. I thought they would be probably a tournament team. I mean, they, they made the tournament last year. They brought back their leading scorer in Brian Tyree. Uh, and, and I thought Kermit, David, Kermit Davis was really building something there, but that has not exactly turned out to be the case. And then you've got, like, Arkansas, Alabama, um, Mississippi State. Like, I don't know. A couple of those teams probably will end up making the tournament. Yeah. Um, but – they're capable of being good and capable of being pretty awful. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, that I mean, about sums it up. Like uh, Arkansas's Arkansas's record's decent, but they have they don't have any. I don't think any top forty wins. And Alabama, I think they're under five hundred in the league. Now. Yeah, Alabama can absolutely beat anyone and lose to anyone because they play at such a crazy pace and play no defense. So yeah, I mean it's it's you know like it's pretty much as we forecasted it coming into conference play. This is you know the league's a little bit down and outside of two or three teams at the top and one or two at the bottom it is just an absolute free-for-all and you know everyone's pretty similar to everyone else everyone's pretty inconsistent and you know while that may make for some entertainment night tonight it doesn't you know it doesn't necessarily lead to probably a lot of teams making the uh the ncaa tournament or a very compelling conference tournament yeah um and kind of want to tie this into you know i saw a lot of comments again about attendance the other night because that's i guess what we do every game now um uh, so we'll start there and kind of go further into Missouri's, you know, the, the numbers came out. Missouri's mm-hmm. still losing money. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm worn out by the basketball attendance thing because there there's two things at play here. First of all, be better. Like, that's number one. <laughs> yeah. Why? What is fans' incentive to come to a game right now? Yeah, I mean. Like, I'm asking honestly because I uh, don't know. I mean, if for me, it's like, you know, I live nearby. There's nothing else going on, and someone gave me the ticket for free. So, it, like, I, I was talking to, to somebody before this podcast. What is the furthest – and understand, we're a little bit jaded and cynical here, but we're going to try to answer this as an actual, like, person who might have some interest in just going to a game. What is the longest drive you would make to watch a – just a, a random midweek Missouri basketball game. Right yeah, without it being like some a compelling opponent who I like had some Which sort of a tie to or something yeah. like that. I mean, I can't imagine more than a half hour. Yeah. Um. I, and and I real and and even that probably not if I had if I had to spend a significant amount of money to you know go to the game or eat or something like that. I mean, it, it would have to be. I, I don't I don't know. I mean, you know, like you said, we obviously you know view it a little bit differently because it's our job to, to go to these things um, and it's less of an enjoyment type thing. But, yeah, I don't think I would, could see myself driving more than a half hour spending more than about $10 on yeah, a ticket. Yeah, I said if I lived further away than Jeff City, mm-hmm. and, and here's the reason, because football, as much as we bitch about football attendance and there's all these stories about it being down and all that, you still only have seven chances to see your team play. Mm-hmm. It is outside, on a weekend, on a 
hopefully nice day. You can come to town, take the kids to Shakespeare's, have a couple beers. It's an event. Yeah. There are 20 college basketball games at home every year, and the vast majority of them are god-awful matchups. Yeah. I, I mean, somebody told me the seats across the aisle from where we sit at Mizzou Arena cost $65 a seat. Oof. I, you can't do that. Yeah, no, that's... I, I mean, it's insane. Why would you buy a season basketball package right now? And, and I'm not talking about Missouri. I'm talking about anywhere. Unless you're in a place where there is so much demand that the only way you get to see, you know, Duke come to your arena is mm-hmm. if you buy a season basketball ticket. I can't imagine committing to 20 games, which means for 10 of them minimum, I am going down, I'm driving an hour and a half, I'm spending two and a half hours there. I am getting home no earlier than 1030 at night, and I've got to wake up at 6 a.m. and work the next day. Right, yeah. I mean, the the, the week midweek games is definitely a, a big part of college basketball's issues, the number of games, the level of competition. There's a lot. And, you know, I think I think it just boils down to, like, you know, we, we, when we're having the discussion about football, like you mentioned, it's, you know, well, you know, it's it's a lot easier to watch on TV. It's a lot more convenient, stuff like that. That that becomes way magnified when it's basketball, when it's like, you know, they, I don't care about it as much to begin with, and not all my, you know, friends or family are meeting up there. It's not a social event. You don't have any tailgating. of the, Right, you don't have any of the other things, you know, that go with a football game. Um, yeah, I think the, all those issues just become exponentially more factors. And all this thought that, oh, man, this network where fans are going to be able to watch the Incarnate Word game is going to be <laughs> so great. I mean, it is, but it's also taking away any incentive someone because I don't think the conversation should be about the people from Kansas City and St. Louis filling that arena. No, that, no. That, it should be the people from New Franklin and Boonville and Jeff City and Columbia. You know, Columbia. Yeah. yeah. You have to get most of your attendance within 25 minutes. And again, well, I don't know. All I have to do is plug this cord into my TV <laughs> and I can watch the East Tennessee Technical Institute play Missouri. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think one thing that the women's basketball team's done really well, and it's a little bit different demographic for sure, their fan base, but they, they really marketed it as, you know, our town, our team, and, and made it a local thing. And that definitely it's not an apples to apples comparison. You know, they had star players from the city of Columbia, but they, I think that's something that, that the men's basketball team should, should really kind of explore and try to market itself more as, as, you know, look at this entertainment that's right here in your town you know maybe you can come you can come watch a guy like anthony edwards play you you watch you watch sec basketball for you know a relatively cheap price right down the road um i think that's that's definitely the 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 play to to increase attendance there okay so um i want to finish this up kind of along the same lines and and i'm going to be forthright here i'm getting these numbers from dave matter's story in the st louis post dispatch because he went through the trouble of getting them all we didn't um, but they're they're out there in other places too. Uh, for the third straight year, Missouri Athletic Department operated at a budget deficit. They had 106.6 million dollars in revenue and spent 108.4, basically. So that is approximately a little less than a 2.3 million dollar deficit. Uh, I'm sorry, the difference results in a deficit of 1.788 million dollars. Um, look, this is a problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, because your expenses dropped, but your revenue also dropped. And mm-hmm. it goes back to, again, 
people aren't going to games. Yeah. No, that's that's definitely the biggest thing is ticket sales. I mean, Missouri's ticket sales dropped for, I think, it was what, the and, fourth or fifth year in a row? Yeah, and that number is based on 2018 football. Right, right. So, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, and I think attendance went down a little bit this year. I think it, it went up a bit. It went up a bit. Okay. And because the, the, in 2018, they had the limited capacity. Okay, um, that's right. And then so not only did it go up a and bit, they but they had out. some more uh, They had some more premium seating. So it should should go up a little bit when you include this coming football season. So it may make it up may, that difference. Right. Basketball, I, I'm sure, probably is a little bit less, maybe yeah. similar. Um, so, yeah, I, it's – but, no, it's I think fourth or fifth year in a row that as a whole ticket sales have dropped between those two sports. And, and that's the biggest difference between Missouri and the big players in the SEC. Um, you know, yes, donations are a factor, but it is ticket sales. I mean, they're I, – I forget the number of day story, but I think he – I don't know, like 10 schools that have like – Thirty plus million dollars worth of uh, of ticket sale revenue, you know, you're talking thirty, thirty three million dollars in Missouri's getting sixteen there. That's that's a huge, huge difference. Um, and you know, it goes back to the the attendance figures like we were just talking about. Um, and clearly, like Missouri's tried to tighten the belt a little bit. They dropped uh, expenses a little bit this year, but next year, you know, you're still in a hole with the the bull ban and the losing money from that. And they're still paying off like $68 million worth of renovations to the south end zone. So it, it is absolutely an issue. Okay, so I've got two ideas to boost this. Uh, one, I think people listening will say, yeah, I really like that. One is going to piss people off Mm -hmm. without question. The first, I'll start with the good news because uh, (laughs) I want you to like me before you get mad at me. Uh, So I don't want to in any way compare running our tiny little website to running the Mizzou athletic department. We did not make $106 million (laughs) on power Mizzou last year, but what, what we have found over the last few years is that it's no longer enough just to say, Hey, we have a lot of good information. Please sign up. Here's the price. You can't do that anymore. We are tying gift cards to get things. We are giving free time away on the site. Most of our signups now come when we are offering some sort of deal. Mm -hmm. And so we're offering a discounted price. But if I get 100 people to sign up at a discounted price, even if 80 of them cancel, I still have 20 people paying me that weren't paying me before. Right. So how do I translate that to Mizzou, especially in basketball? Um, hey, tickets are $5 for non-conference games. Mm-hmm. Or if you buy tickets, if you buy a four-pack, you get to pick four other games and you get a free ticket to those games. Mm-hmm. I, something to get them in the door to because maybe they'll come and go, hey, this was pretty fun. I want to come back. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they'll come in and buy two beers and six things of Dippin' Dots and some cotton candy <laughs> and spend some money. You know, I mean, get them in the door. And if they don't come back, you're still not make, making less money. But if they do come back, all of a sudden you've got new customers by doing nothing more than saying, we are going to give you a cheap price to come. Yeah. Yeah. No, I absolutely agree. Um, and, and even I'm sure, you know, that would work with football to a lesser extent this coming year's schedule is not exactly the most exhilarating pick a couple of those you know group of five games or non-conference games and and do a similar thing um say you know maybe market it especially to people with families because i think that's an effective way to to a get concession money and b you know if kids have a good time parents will take note and be like okay they liked that we'll do that again those are people who maybe aren't coming for the opponent so much as my kid gets to be outside and run around and see the football guys exactly yeah um, yeah, the schedule is is a factor. So here's the other thing that we'll kind of end the discussion with this. I would make the case that one of Missouri's 
big issues for the last, I don't know, I think it, it really was a Mike Alden thing. I don't have a lot of history before then. Uh, they always say that good is the enemy of great. I think Missouri has spent far too much tra- time trying to be decent to good at a lot of things rather than picking something to be really good at. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean there's only two sports I'm talking about here. I don't care if you pick football or men's basketball, but they're the only two that matter because they're the only two that make money. So whatever it is. So every dime that is going to, I you know, and I don't want to pick on a specific sport, but building new things or dumping money into facilities for a sport that loses money anyway, I would pick football or men's basketball, and I would first go to those coaches and say, how much do you need to compete? And we will find it from the other places. Because if you're really good in one of those sports, you get people there, it raises your revenue, and a rising tide, you know, helps all boats. And if you're really good at one of those, you have the money to maybe get better at the other one. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, I would say, you know, there's the, the the only difficulty like with just outright eliminating sports is a title nine but b i'm not saying the, you have to eliminate yeah b the sec you know kind of encourages its members to have x number of sports but yeah no i i can see that um i would say you know i, I don't know this for a fact I, i'm guessing like you know i was on the swim team like there's a little bit of money that can come out of that budget right. like it's you know it and still have like a good experience um and and i don't know if you can take a little bit yeah. out of each non-revenue sports and that would make a huge difference but it's probably worth a shot right because like Let's be honest. If we're talking about the department as a whole, does being worse at swimming hurt Missouri's athletic department in any appreciable way? <laughs> Maybe my opinion Other of it than slightly. for the swimmers? <laughs> no, yeah, no, not at all. Right. And so, you know, and people have – the best example to me has always been Kansas. Like, they're not very good at much of anything. But, God, they're really good at the one thing they're good at. Yeah. And because of that, they have this bigger profile now – Maybe that hurts my argument that they still haven't gotten good at the other things. But, you know, I, I just I would rather be really good at one or both of the two things that matter yeah. than be decent at a bunch of things. Like yep. I, these director's cup thing. I don't care. Right. Like, I don't care that Stanford wins it every year because they win water polo and cross country. Yeah. They're not all that good at basketball. And now they're slipping at football. True. True. The one sort of devil's advocate thing I would play there is, you know, the throwing money at at sports may not you know it's like it's it will that work i don't know it's hard to say i mean it's Throwing probably worth a shot might work yes well it's that's working in baton Rouge yeah that's that's not i mean that yeah we're not gonna have that discussion <laughs> right now but like you know kansas has has been really good at basketball for a long time that that's like that's yes they've they've you know probably directed the majority of resources there but they're really good because they've been good forever right. and fans are conditioned to support that team and they've had really good coaches like yeah. hall of two straight hall of fame coaches three three straight hall of fame right coaches yeah. yeah so that you know while giving month more money to you know say football might help it, it also you you absolutely have to there's an element of luck to it and an element of you know establishing it year over year as being you know conditioned to being really good and and you know having a tradition that attracts fans attracts donors and attracts recruits so so what you're telling me is quinn snyder mike anderson frank Haith, kim anderson conzo martin not maybe five straight hall of famers maybe not okay maybe not all right know. well that's the way it goes all right well we have once again solved all the problems uh, on this podcast. We will finish. Look, you guys know who I'm going to pick. Super Bowl pick. 
Oh man, I I figured you were probably going to ask, and I I really am not that prepared. Um, but I also I, mean, feel, no, I also I'm facing mine on. Nothing. I also feel like my hands are kind of tied here. No, you pick whoever you want. I mean, I can't kick you off this podcast because then I have to do it by myself. Like That's last true. week, I could tell Yasir Durant you don't get to come back on the podcast. I'm not going to tell you that. That's a good point. I mean, I I have I'll say this real quick. I have like doubts about both teams, right? You know, the 49ers, I, they have a really good defense, but like if it comes down to Jimmy Garoppolo having to lead a drive late in the game, can he do it? The Chiefs, if they start like they did the past couple weeks, they're probably in trouble. And I don't know, man. People keep saying that. I know, but the 49ers are such a better team than yeah. the Texans That's and Titans. They're way better. Um, but, no, I, I'm going to go with the Chiefs. I think that, you know, like all the all the time we see it in football all the time, it comes down to when you have the better quarterback, you're at an advantage, and I think the Chiefs have that. I I, I will be happy for Andy Reid for sure um, to if he gets a win. I'll say the Chiefs by, like, four. All right, I yeah, I actually picked the Chiefs 33-31 on a Harrison Butker field goal on the last play of the game. Um and the reasoning is simple. If the if Patrick Mahomes plays well, I don't think anybody in the NFL can beat the Chiefs. And I heard somebody say on a podcast this morning, Patrick Mahomes has never had a bad game. Like he's <laughs> he's he's had games that aren't as good as other ones, but he's never had a game that you look at and go, "Yeah, that was a bad game." Yeah. You I know? can't think of any. Yeah. So that's uh that's my pick. Um, next Thursday, if the Chiefs win, we're definitely doing the podcast. If the Chiefs <laughs> lose, I may quit working. So that's how it goes. Not really. We'll probably be here. I don't know what we'll talk about. It'll be after signing day, so maybe we'll talk about that. Um, that's not a very good tease, but just listen because I don't know. You like <laughs> us. We'll talk to you next time.